ring, copper bells all seem to say, throw cares away. Ding, <laughs> dong, ding. Dong. Dong. I'll do all the dongs. Ding. Dong. Ding. Dong. Don't worry, I've got them. Hello, and welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia, chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing the penultimate chapter of The Horse and His Boy, the, um, actually Prince Caspian, and this is chapter 14, titled How All Were Very Busy, and this is a very busy chapter so busy i of course am the old nurse whoa you're back i'm back also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host i'm a dumpy prim little girl with fat legs (laughs) also known as chris (laughs) i forgot about those characters Mm -hmm. you're not a you're not a piggy boy i'm not a piggy boy okay you're a dumpy prim little girl prim little girl with fat legs Anyway, um, oh, once again in this chapter, we're going to have Lewis's war on education. Oh, no, I know. I, know. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to have to bring that up or you would. All right. So, Chris, um, tell us, what is the first thing we do when we do this podcast? Uh, we do our, well, normally we, we're supposed to do like our, our getting to know you segment where we talk about current events and what's going on in our lives and like talk about the fact that it was just Christmas. Did you get anything good for Christmas, Kristen? I got a hoodie with the Mandalorian <laughs> symbol on it, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I got some D&D stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got some good snacks. Yeah. Got some money. It was a solid haul. It was a solid haul. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Got what did you get for mixer? Christmas? <laughs> um, mostly the same things. Yeah. <laughs> And a stand mixer. Uh-huh. Yep. Cool. Now that we've established a connection with our listeners, we can now <laughs> proceed <laughs> to do the summary of the chapter, in which we pick five sentences out that, surprise, surprise, summarize the chapter in our minds, and we use those as a starting point for discussing. And Do those words come from the same root? I believe they do. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we're doing an evening record, too, which means we're extra silly. You say that, like, every time that we talk about when we do a record and it's a bad thing, it's a morning record, like... Well, there's less planes now. There's less bad, planes. Which is a good thing. Usually more sirens, so we'll see what happens. Well, whatevs. Uh, anyway, who wants to go first with their, uh, summary? You do. Alright, uh, this one's gonna might be rough to get through because I was using a pen that didn't want to work half the time. My pen did not want to work on the right-hand side of the page at all. (laughs) I don't know why. Interesting. Uh, But here is my summary. For a second, the clash could be heard, but it was immediately drowned because both armies began shouting like crowds at a football match. But Glozell stopped to stab his own king dead where he lay. That's for your insult this morning, he whispered. As the blade went home. Tough-looking warriors turned white, gazed in terror, not on the 
old Narnians, but on something behind them, and then flung down their weapons, shrieking, The wood! The wood! The end of the world! Then the whole party moved off, Aslan leading, Bacchus and his maenads leaping, rushing, and turning somersaults, and beasts frisking round them, and Silenus and his donkey bringing up the rear. And so at last, with leaping and dancing and singing, with music and laughter and roaring and barking and neighing, they all came to the place where Maraz's army stood, flinging down their swords and holding and holding up their hands. And Peter's army, still holding their weapons and breathing hard, stood round them with stern and glad faces. I almost used that last sentence, but oh, I decided... What a long sentence is there. That yeah, was a, decided right. not to do the last one. Go ahead, babe. Um, But we did have two sentences in the same spot. I am surprised. You're surprised. Because, like, this is a very busy chapter, so I was not expecting us to pick similar summary sentences. But go ahead. Well, this clearly indicates that these are important parts of the chapter. Mm -hmm. All right, here's the summary I wrote. Mm -hmm. I have a chance if I can keep him on the hop till his weight and short wind come against him in this hot sun, too. But Glazelle stopped to stab his own king dead where he lay. That's for your insult this morning, he whispered as the blade went home. Tough-looking warriors turned white, gazed in terror, not on the old Narnians, but on something behind them, and they flung down their weapons, shrieking, The wood! She looked out of the window and saw the divine revelers singing up the street and a Stab of joy went through her heart. Most of the people fled. A few joined them. <laughs> That's fun. I like your ending there. Uh, so this is a very busy chapter, as we said in the intro. Well, in the lot, title of the chapter. Uh, a lot of stuff happens, and this is... We've gotten to the point where it's hard for me to talk about just the chapter and not, not start laying into and dissecting the book as a whole. I'm trying really hard not to do that okay. because we do that on our wrap-up episode with our guests that we have on, uh, which we're going to do for this book as well. So I'm going to try to keep it to this chapter. Still, a lot goes on, and I'm very bothered by Lewis's issues with pacing. <laughs> okay. Like, all of this is stuff that the, could have happened earlier like in the book. Like, it could have been or... spread out over two or three or four chapters and not, like, all packed into this one. Because the last chapter, I can already tell, is just going to be, like, it's a chapter of resolution and denouement, which is one of my favorite words that I say like, almost every episode. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, I say that a lot. Listeners, back me up. Penultimate is also yeah. a word you really like, but you don't have say you it in almost every episode. I know. Anyway. <laughs> so... No, the pacing is a big problem here because I feel like we had so many chapters in this book that kind of lulled or like stuff didn't pick up until like the very end. Everything, every and, chapter had stuff happen in it though. We only had like one episode Yeah, it's that a, was like, I don't know what to talk about now. It, but it's also like the, not, not the flaw because it's not really anything wrong with it. It's just like one of the big challenges of doing children's literature when you're doing like a 200 page book instead of like a 600 page book is that all of your climax and all of your action has to fall in a very short amount of time and it makes it feel very rushed and very busy. Um, so let's go through the chapter and talk about what happens here. Uh, so we open up with the big fight. Yep. The single fight. combat between Miraz and Peter. Yes. Uh, we have everybody in our corners. Uh, Bulgy Bear is there sucking his paws. 
Yep. Even though we warned him not to. Despite everyone's warnings. Uh, and that's, you know, the big reason why this goes as poorly as it does, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we have Bulgy Bear stuck in his paws and Glenn Storm trying to make up for that by looking extra imposing. Which he does very successfully, <laughs> uh, I might point out. Uh, we have, you know, the other one, uh, Wimbleweather, he's in the corner as well. Then we have the three nobles on Miraz's side. Including Glazelle and Sopaspian. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll be a plot point later. God, why do I keep going into accents? It's usually your problem. No. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> anyway, so we have our, our court made up and we're starting our battle. And the first third of this chapter is just a description. Crows and crockery, Chris. You've skipped something entirely. What have I skipped? The fact that Trumpkin, in the beginning of the chapter, says that he wishes Aslan was here. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's come around. He has absolutely 100% flipped the switch mm-hmm. on Aslan and everything about what he believes about what is going on in the uh, in the beastly realms. Well, you know how those new believers are, those new converts that are always on fire for Aslan. Yeah, they, they want Aslan there. Yeah, <laughs> can't get enough. Can't, can't wait to see the raucous party that starts <laughs> later. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Um... The first third of this chapter is just entirely describing this uh, this combat that takes place. And we do a better action scene here. Than Horse and His Boy. Than Horse and His Boy, I for wrote, sure. I wrote that in the uh, margin of the book and said, compare this to Horse and His Boy. Uh-huh. Where we have questions. We, have, we don't have a firsthand account of what's happening. We're not sitting there going, and he swung his sword and this is what happened. But we are having someone say, oh, I missed it. What happened? Oh, he swung his sword and this is what happened. Yeah, that that part I was still upset about because we still can't get away from like this weird thing that Lewis does where he can't just describe action. He has to tell talk about somebody describing action to somebody else. Watch. Ah, now they're <laughs> beginning again. More scientifically this time. Uh-huh. And like I read it the first time and I was like, okay, I follow this. It makes sense. I can picture it in my head. But you really have to like dive back into it and compare it to other action scenes just to get a handle on how weird it is. It is a little weird. And like, you know, as an example, because we have read three books collectively over the past 10 years, <laughs> um, talking about something like the Dresden Files, which we're both familiar with and have read a lot of. That's, and there's That is a lot more than three books. Yes, I, it was a joke. <laughs> okay. Ha 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 ha. It's a series. Yes. Um, but we've read the whole series so far. And like, there's a lot of action scenes in that. And just taking a minute to, to say, you know, how weird would it be if Jim Butcher was just like, all right, there's going to be somebody watching Harry Dresden do these things and describing what he's doing, but yeah, we're not but, actually going to. But when you also, <laughs> you can take that and say any time that the first person narrator, Harry Dresden, is describing something that's happening between other people, that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. It's not framed as a conversation, though. Yeah, but it it's not framed as a conversation. Yes, that's true. However... It is still a first-person account of it because it's first-person story writing. Uh-huh. Now, this book being written as a children's book that is not a first-person narrative uh-huh. is out of character for children's books as we're familiar with them today. Yes. Like, a lot of young adult books are all first-hand, first-person, mm-hmm. and all of those kind of things. So, yes, we have a very different narrative structure here where there are conversations, and we're watching the people who are watching the fight. 
Mm-hmm. It's like we're standing with our back to the fight watching um, the doctor and Edmund talk about this fight. Mm-hmm. And, oh, uh, Braz knows his work. And, oh, like, what is it? What is it? My old eyes missed it. And, oh, it looks ugly again. And Caspian's there described. Like, it's a conversation between the three people watching. And so we're just, like, sitting there, like, we have our back to the fight, watching people watch the fight while they talk about it. And it's very different from Horse and His Boy, where we have a person who is in a role of being able to see the fight in the magic pool, the the hermit, describing two people who have an invested interest in what's happening on the other side of that pool's imagery that they can't see. Mm -hmm. Like... It is, it is like putting us in the role of Erebus who can't see the pool and no. there is just one person who can see the pool describing to us. But instead of the hermit, we have Caspian and Edmund and the doctor talking to each other about it. Mm-hmm. So it's really weird. It's really, really weird. I agree. Yeah. Um, and it did give me the idea where I think all of these books would almost work better from a first person perspective. I do agree with that too, well, but like, also then you have moments like this yeah. where Susan and Lucy are off doing something else like yeah. you can't fault like you have moments yeah. where Edmund leaves the party behind. And you can have multiple first person perspectives. Like we could we could have it written from the perspective of Susan and from Peter and from Edmund. Like we could do a you know, a round and just do the three perspectives which has been done many times before. And it's something that I almost thought about in my in my outlining for rewriting this book, which I'm actively working on right now. Are you? Yes, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I've thought about switching perspectives and doing a first person, but like in actually turning this into a more fleshed out adult story, I feel like we have to have cutaways to outside perspectives, and it's impossible to do it justice for what I want to do. But yeah. uh, so little little teaser about what might be coming in you know a year when I finish this. <laughs> Um, anyway, so we have this whole fight, um, and Peter is not handily winning this. He's really struggling. Yeah. Uh, Peter and Mraz are really struggling here. Peter gets first blood, though. Um, he does get first blood, and we also skipped over the fact that early on in the fight, like, before anything anything even starts, all the dryads and, like, the other, the, the Hama dryads and the Sylvans and all the tree people, they come up to watch the battle. Yes. Like, they thousands of them come into it you know and are just there yep which trumpkin does some great foreshadowing and says well they'll be a great help if they you know they try to pull anything over on the other side yep and they wink wink and they do um so the fight draws on for a minute and peter you know gets him up against the ropes knocks morass down he's on his stomach everybody's just like he should finish him off because that well, we, would... we also have a moment where they take a little break they... you've skipped over their little breather uh-huh he comes and he tells you know he tells edmund to give my love to to everyone at home ed if he gets me here he comes into the list again so long old chap uh... goodbye doctor and i say ed Say something specially nice to Trumpkin. He's been a brick. Mm-hmm. And this this I felt weird about because this is a thing in this chapter that's supposed to have emotional weight, which I didn't feel because I feel like this wasn't earned. If you get where I'm coming from. Yeah. Oh, I feel yeah. like this was not an earned emotional moment. This is not moment. an emotional payoff. Yeah, like this isn't. 
and like we have this whole thing set up and the the whole tone is triumph and like hey we have a plan and you know peter's you know peter never screws anything up except for that one time that we went the wrong way um you know and he's got a plan to go into this and we have aslan and you know god on our side and at no point and dwarf rot male don't forget that yeah and my issue is at no point prior to this do we really feel like peter's in danger yeah and so it's a really like weird turn where we feel like you know peter's our guy and we're gonna pull this out and it's gonna have a happy ending because it's a kid's book um but then suddenly peter out of nowhere is like oh yeah i might die right now um yeah tell everybody i love him uh edmund you've been great you know say something to trumpkin don't worry about the girls they'll be fine you know don't <laughs> that says to everyone at home yeah to everyone at home he does not mention susan and lucy at all yeah, he says to true. everyone at home edmund trumpkin forget my goodbye, sisters doctor. yeah <laughs> says goodbye to the doctor it's like nope got no message for lucy she'll be fine uh but it's this weird moment where it's supposed to have this emotional heaviness to it which just didn't hit home for me yeah oh yeah definitely doesn't the line that stood out the most to me in this whole description of the fights and everything was uh look said truffle hunter Mraz is angry it is good <laughs> yeah which is i mean i get what they were what he was going for they could have written it better i keep saying they like there's a collective writing these books <laughs> lewis could have done it better um there is though he never touched a typewriter <laughs> Yeah, I forget. These are all dictated. Um, but yeah, he, he's going for this sense of, oh yeah, Morass is angry. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to start doing things recklessly, like use it against him. It, it's a weird way to to phrase that with Trouble Hunter just saying, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was a weird cut. And then... Uh, Peter is way too noble to finish Mraz off when he has him on the ground. When he stumbles, <clears throat> Mraz stumbled. It wasn't like Peter beat him to the ground. Like, Mraz stumbled. Uh-huh. And that would absolutely be dishonorable for him to take the swing at that moment. Would have. And... In fact, that's what Glazelle and Sopespian are trying to frame this as. Uh-huh. Like, they jump in at that moment, cry treachery, and say that Peter attacked the the downed king yes and that's when you know they do it's patricide is the father what's the regicide regicide mm-hmm. this regicide slash coup and i guess this is the you know the nice part about having your front lines of your army two arrow shots away like they're hundreds of feet off they can't actually really see what's going on mm-hmm. which I guess framing that is also kind of strange. Well, that because... the whole point of having the the people there, like Wimbleweather and the bear and the yes, like that's what they're there yes. for. But earlier on, and like in uh, one of the lines I used for my summary, we have like both sides are cheering like it's a football match and yeah. like shouting and like getting not really American excited. football. Chris. Yes, I know, but getting really excited about this. Go! How do they know that he got first blood? How do they yeah. see that? Yeah, but like, yeah, if we're on flat ground and like the front lines are two, you know, arrow shots away, like this is probably at least a couple hundred feet. Like, have you ever tried to watch a fight between two people from 200 feet away? Like, you can't really tell what's what's going on. No. So. You can't. The 
yeah, they're just excited I, for the sake of being excited, which is fine. I mean, I, I am not an expert whatsoever on medieval weaponry, but I know a longbow does have quite a range to it. And I feel like a longbow shot being 100 feet is not remotely out of the question. Okay. So, anyway. Um, so they're going out at hammer and tongs. Gets them out on the ground, and then regicide happens. Yep. Uh, it's Glazelle. Rushes in. Stabs the king when he's on the ground. Kills him. Mraz dies in this chapter with very little fanfare. It's just mm-hmm. like, Glazelle steps in, stabs him, he's dead. Yep. That's that's it. There goes our antagonist. Well, Peter would not have won this fight if all three of the nobles had come at him at once, but Glazelle stopped to kill the king. So Pespian fought with him. And immediately gets beheaded. Like, and Edmund just, like... just beheads him mm-hmm. in the same stroke, with the back cut of the same stroke. He only took one stroke. Uh-huh. Uh, Peter beheads him. Peter, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Peter does. Yeah. And we have no description of what the third guy did. He just, you know. It's like, Peter, if all three had set upon him at once, he would never have spoken again. Yeah. But Lazelle stopped. Peter swung to face to Pespian and cut his head off. Yeah. And then Edmund was crying for Narnia, Narnia, the lion. Yeah. And that's it. Like, we don't know what happened to the third guy. We also don't know where, um, what the bulgy bear was doing at this point. Or, like, we hear the next of Wimbleweather of the three. He comes in swinging. Like, he's swinging that club around. Uh, the centaurs are firing arrows and dwarves and whatnot. Um... The doors are falling in areas. I don't know if we say exactly what, uh, oh, the centaurs charge. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming we're including Glenstorm in that. Come back, reap a cheap, you little ass. <laughs> <laughs> that line caught me off guard. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I chuckled a little bit. But, uh, yeah. You reap a cheap. Shouted you'll be killed. Peter. There's you'll... no. Yep. This, again, this is Peter being racist against mice. Like this, this continues is no on. No place for mice. This continues on from the last chapter, where like Peter didn't want the mouse involved in any of like the diplomacy or well, like setting this thing up. I mean, even Lewis says, "But the ridiculous little creatures were dancing in and out among the feet of both armies." Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, they they took down quite a few by stabbing the ankles of the Telmarines with their swords. So and they they brought him down and like they when they when they stumbled they came in and finished him off even yep like this is like a horrifying bit of imagery here it is <laughs> it is now does it remind you of the mice that chewed the ropes to free Aslan when he was killed on the stone table but, yeah yeah I mean, do you think that this was like a gift to the mice because we didn't really have like talking mice specifically mentioned prior to this. Do you think that this was like an honor bestowed upon the ni- the mice, this nobility and this like spirit and this ability to talk? Maybe. Maybe this is what mice are known for. Maybe. Mice are, mice are noble swordsmen who fight and stab the ankles of unsuspecting or they're so noble. <laughs> and they didn't get wiped out like the beavers did. They didn't. <laughs> um, so anyway... This battle starts... Hey, Chris, I have a question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Have you ever stood at the edge <laughs> of a great wood on a high ridge when a wind, when a wild southwester broke out in full fury on an autumn evening? No. Well, imagine that sound. 
And then imagine that the wood, instead of being fixed to one place, was rushing at you and was no longer trees but huge people. Yet still like trees because their long arms waved like branches and their heads tossed and leaves fell around them in showers. Mm-hmm. It was like that for the Telmarines. It's pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, that was that was an interesting line that I do use in my rewrite, so we'll come back to that. Right. Uh, but I thought, despite the weird cutaway that Lewis does describing his nature scenes that he's really into, do you remember the Southwester? Um, a wild Southwester <sighs> broke out in full fury. Aside from that, this was really really good foreshadowing that i didn't see coming really what was the whole idea that's established in the very beginning of the book that the telmarines are afraid of the wood you didn't see this coming well you didn't see this coming not exactly this way okay like okay not with like the charge of the of the ends sorry we (laughs) we we just watched two towers last night yes um since fresh in my head but yeah not like them being routed and running in fear for the lives from the trees like i didn't see that scene playing out sorry sammy uh, no 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 um, i mean it's it's how you read books it's up to you to like <laughs> read into them whatever amount of foreshadowing you want to and i feel like this one was very obvious personally but i understand that you don't no i personally didn't think the trees were ever going to take place in the battle oh okay so like, like the moment where Lucy goes out into the woods and calls out to the trees the first time, like that didn't strike yeah, you as like. I mean, I knew they were going to do something. Like I didn't. Yeah. I just, you know. You thought they were going to come tear down Raz's tower, like the Ents went yeah. and beat Saruman or exactly. something. Okay. Yeah, like I mean, at no point in the previous books and all of our battle scenes do we have any tree folk or anything taking part. So, you know, it's never stated. Oh, they're pacifists or anything, but I just didn't see them. But as, some of the trees are on her side. Yeah. Which like, I... About the witch. I had always assumed it meant more like spies and the trees are listening and uh. telling secrets. Um, but yeah, I didn't see this charge of the trees happening and I appreciated that. Yeah. It got gotcha, you, huh? And that was done well. Um, so we have the charge of the, re- the, the trees. The army is routed. They're going to retreat. And they're heading to that bridge that we've mentioned before. The, yes. uh, bridge the bridge of- at Burundi. Mm-hmm. Burunda. <laughs> Burundi. Uh, uh, Bridget Bruna. They're heading for that. And oh no, they get there and there's no bridge. No bridge, the bridge you is, say? The bridge is gone. You mean that it's now just the fords of Baruna again? Yep. Uh, and it says, then utter panic and horror fell upon them and they all surrendered. Battle's done. Yep. So there we go. That's the end of the battle. But, but what, what happened, happened to, to the, the bridge? bridge? <laughs> Chris... <laughs> Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh-huh. I'm glad you asked, Lewis. Let me tell you. Here's what happened to the bridge. Go on. Early that morning, after a few hours sleep, the girls had woken to see Aslan standing over them and to hear his voice saying, We will make holiday. Which was going to be one of the sentences I was going to use mm-hmm. for my um, summary. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have Bacchus and the Maynads. His fierce mad clap women. Uh, girls, I'm gonna pa- sorry. I'm His gonna... fierce mad clap girls. I'm going to pause you right there and come in with like just a weird throwback reference. 
whenever I, I read that for the first time, where Aslan's just like, we'll have a holiday or something, the thing that immediately came to mind for me, for whatever reason, was, like, the original Frosty the Snowman. Like, Frosty popping in and being like, happy birthday! And just, like, that kind of, like, <laughs> magical figure just being like, I know things are terrible, but let's celebrate. Let's go have fun. Let's we're have a party. Go have yeah, we're going to holiday. We're going to go make holiday. And like that was the first thing that came to happy mind. from <laughs> Where Aslan is a Frosty-esque figure in this situation <laughs> where we summon him in with an old magic hat and he writes all the wrongs of the world. I see. Ooh, well. New fan theory. Frosty is Jesus. Um, <laughs> but continue. Uh, so Lucy was fully rested. She jumped up. Everyone was awake. And what is it, Aslan? Well, come children. Right on my back again today. Mm-hmm. Which is him asking them to ride on his back again. The last time that they rode on his back was two-way battle. Where they had just rescued all of the stoned people in the witch's house. Mm-hmm. And he was riding them to the battle. That mm-hmm. he was going to finish by killing the witch in a pounce. Mm-hmm. And we have him now on the verge of battle. Asking them to ride on his back and he takes them away. Uh-huh. Um, because things don't happen the same way twice. Um, and so, oh lovely, cried Lucy. They get up on his back and he takes them down. They all race down to the bridge. And the river god sits up and says, hail lord. Loose my chains. He's been chained. Which is a very interesting thing to have him just say, like, he he is the river god. Uh-huh. And within the canon of Narnia, he was created by Aslan, sang yeah. into existence, and he says, Hail, Lord, and then immediately says, Loose my chains. Which I found <laughs> an odd, like, amount of, like, demand, but also, like, weird reverence. Mm-hmm. Who on earth is that? Hey, whispered Susan. Susan? Susan? You're not on earth. Um, <laughs> Do you have Art of the River God in your chapter? I don't. Show so me your Art of the River Art God. I have Art of the River God here, who looks like vaguely like Cthulhu-esque in this art. He's, uh... Ah. Yeah, he's covered in kelp and weeds and has, like, a weird thorny crown on for some reason and comes up out of the river. Okay. So, there okay. he is. Um, but go on. Yes, and so Bacchus deliver him from his chains, Aslan orders. He does not, Aslan doesn't do anything. He sends Bacchus to do it. Yeah. Bacchus, this bacchanal, uproarious. Gosh, that lad will do anything. Yes, <laughs> he, he, he could do anything. <laughs> um, that means the bridge, I expect, thought Lucy, and so it did. So yes, you were right, it was the bridge. And so the river god has asked to be free of his chains. Mm. Where So I want to know what happened with the river god and why he was perfectly capable of like sitting up and talking to Aslan. Like it wasn't like he had been awakened like the trees. He was uh-huh. just like, nope, I need my chains broken. Like yeah. are you just not allowed to w- build bridges? Is it dammed up? <laughs> like have they have they stopped the flow of the river? Like... Obviously not, because they talked about following the river up from the island of Caraparavel, but blah, blah, blah. Um, they, yeah, I don't know. You're, just not, you're not allowed to bridge. 
Hooray, it's the Ford of Baruna again now, cried the girls. Mm-hmm. And so they went up into the town and they went straight to a school. <laughs> oh, man. Directly, well, well, the first house they came to was a school, a girls' school, mm-hmm. where a lot of Narnian girls with their hair done, are, they're not listed as Telmarine girls. Mm-hmm. They're listed as Narnian girls, which I found interesting. With their hair done very tight and ugly tight collars around their neck and thick, tick, tickly stockings on their legs, were having a history lesson. But the sort of history that was taught Narnia under Miraz's rule was duller than the truest history you ever read and less true than the most exciting adventure story. So they're being taught fake, fake history. Fake boring news. Yep. And so... <laughs> We have a child get distracted by the fact that there's a lion outside and get in trouble by the teacher, Miss Prizzle. Um, and then... Which could not picture as anything other than Miss Frizzle for Magic School Bus. I know. It was a little frustrating. <laughs> um, and then, yes. Um, we have this moment of freeing the children from the school. And also from... Their clothing. Their clothing. <laughs> um, so this is an interesting scene where we have Bacchus and his uh, his. Well, wild... we have Aslan say, you'll stay with us, sweetheart, in a question to Gwendolyn, the child that didn't run away. Uh-huh. And, oh, may I? Thank you, thank you, said Gwendolyn. Instantly, she joined hands with two of the maenads... Which, as as we all know, are the fierce mad clap girls uh-huh. of Bacchus, and um, they whirled her around in a merry dance and helped her take off some of the unnecessary and uncomfortable clothes that she was wearing. I just put a question mark <laughs> next to that in the margin of my book because I genuinely didn't know what to do with that. Like I get it, where he's like, "Oh yeah, she's wearing tights and a really tight collar and all of this," like. Maybe she's just getting the stockings off, but like, that's, when you're like, this is Bacchus and his mad clap girls, and his, and his mad clap girls are coming and grabbing this child out of school and helping her get rid of her unnecessary clothing. It's very weird scene. It's very weird scene. (laughs) It's uh, not something you can put in a kid's book today. No, it's not. Not without a lot more explanation. Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I tried really hard to come up with a, like, a place Lewis was going with this. Nope. I don't know. I don't, I don't have anything. It wasn't there. (laughs) Uh, other than his railing on education again. Yeah. And it's just like. Well, and then they went to the next town halfway to Beaversdam. Uh-huh. Where the two rivers met. Now, the Beaver's Dam is fine. Yep. It has not chained the river god. Nope. Um, but they came to another school. Full of pig boys. Yes. Uh, well, oh boy. first I need to, we need to point us out. Uh, between the two towns on the road, we have a random encounter. Yes, with... and I wrote uh, a note on my, in my margin about this. So uh-huh. go ahead and tell us about this. We have a random encounter where we encounter a boy getting beaten by a man on a farm somewhere. And without any questioning or further ado, we turn the man who's beating the kid into a tree. Yes. Um, and I wrote Uncle Andrew question mark. 
because we had the Narnians plant Uncle Andrew at the birth of Narnia. Okay. In an attempt to find out if this angry, bitter, damaged magician man was something that could grow and was a plant. A tree. Sorry, I was going to say, is that the... uh... Is that the title of the next Dresden book? <laughs> Angry, bitter, damaged magician, man. <laughs> oh. So the stick burst into flowers in the man's hand. He tried to drop it, but it stuck to his hand. And he became a tree. Absolutely. And the boy who had been crying a moment before burst out laughing and joined them. Like... Who, what was his relationship with this man who was beating him? Like, even if it was his father, I don't think he would burst out laughing and join Aslan. Like, like you literally just killed that man. You turned him into a tree. Well, this is, like, this whole thing is just, like, a barely contained roving band of madness that's spreading across the countryside. It is. And, like, the like children, <laughs> the, the piggy boys you mentioned... There are some rumors that may, they may have never been seen again, and there may have been a nice herd of pigs that had never been in that side of the country before. Uh-huh. Like, they may have actually turned children into pigs mm-hmm. to be eaten. Non-talking pigs. Yeah, um, which I think we should point out here that you can take uh, at least these first few scenes that happen as we're rowing about the country. And ostensibly what's happening here is, oh, Aslan's leading the children and, you know, Bacchus and the party goers and, you know, healing this land. We're coming in, we're throwing off the chains of the Telmarines, we're bringing back Narnia to where it's supposed to be, we're healing the land and the people, etc., etc. Yes, and literally healing some people. Yes. Um, however, the first couple of scenes here, I think you could take Aslan out and drop in basically any trickster god from mythology i know right and this would be the exact same story yes yes like <sighs> we have actually just taken this and been like i this is coyote and bacchus yeah. having a good time like yeah like huh? this could be loki this could this, be yeah like, and it would play out the same way yes so i thought that was fascinating it is it is except except up until the moment where Aslan finds this this young person crying. Why are you crying, my love? Uh-huh. And so the child had never seen a picture of a lion and was not afraid of him. Obviously. Uh-huh. He is not big enough to pick up Trumpkin and throw him <laughs> in the air or anything. So I wouldn't be afraid of him either, child. Talking animal. I, whatever. Tristan, if you were if if just, like, hanging out in, like, a cafe, you know, someday... And, like, coming down the street, you saw, like, some sort of large, gray, six-legged animal. Uh, I mean, that, that we're, would... we're talking about something. She's seen dogs before. Like, yeah. this is a really gigantic dog. Yeah, like, like if, you, if you had seen a, a new critter that was many times larger than you that you'd never seen before, would your first instinct would be just be like, I'm not afraid of that. I yeah, don't know what I'm that just is. Gonna, I'm going to answer it when it asks why I'm crying. My auntie's very ill. She's going to die. And then, and then, and then, Aslan comes to the house of this poor dying auntie and sticks his head in the door, but it's too big. So he destroys the house. Which I thought was a plot hole, because have we not established before that Aslan can change sizes? We have not not said that he can change sizes. We said that he is bigger now because the girls are bigger. Yeah. Okay. That's, That's all we've said. 
Okay. But I think, like, we have the scene where he appears to uh, Shasta slash Kor. As a cat. Yes, and also, like, as a giant thing that, like... Yeah. Which is a reflection of Shasta's faith in Aslan. Yeah. But, like, if he can appear as a cat, I feel like he could go into the house as a cat. I'm just saying. Yeah, but there's faith (laughs) of him here. He can't. He has to destroy the house. This woman has dwarvish blood in her. Obviously. She knew he was coming back. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, we have another person with dwarvish blood. Um... We have Bacchus hand her a glass of water from the wine, which, from the wine, from the well, which is, of course, now wine. So we have Bacchus changing water into wine mm-hmm. in a very Jesus analog. Yes, but there, there but is. Bacchus. Before that, there is this line I want to point, point out where the old lady asks, have you come to take me away? And Aslan take says. Take me away. Sorry. Go ahead. Aslan says, yes, dearest, but not the long journey yet. And, like, this very kind of ominous kind of scene. Just being like, not yet. I'm not going to take you into, like, the undying lands. No. Wait. Let's <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think that, I thought that was an interesting side of Aslan. As, like, also Grim Reaper. Yeah. A companion <laughs> unto death. Yeah. yeah. But I also find it really weird that, like, it's Bacchus who dipped a pitcher in the well. Mm-hmm. And handed it to her, and it's wine now. But let's talk about this wine, though, babe. No, like... okay, but like <laughs> seriously, I want to talk about what role Bacchus is filling. He is the wine turner. Like he is this kind of rompous, raucous. Like we've had this moment before that we've discussed him, where he was like, oh, a companion to Aslan, and it's like it's okay if you do things as long as Aslan's there. I wouldn't have felt safe without Aslan there. But mm-hmm. you also have him being this instrument of literally breaking the chains of the river god and literally like changing the water to wine, which I understand the wine element of Bacchus's character is in line with Bacchus's character. Uh-huh. And that makes sense with Bacchus as a character. But why is Bacchus also breaking the bridge and he's the chain breaker for the river god? Mm-hmm. Like, is there something within the mythology of Bacchus that I'm missing there? That I know off the top of my head, no. I'd have to do more research. Uh, but yeah, is is Bacchus like more of an aspect of Aslan here than his own entity? Like, is he... <clears throat> That's what I want to know. You know, is he the party boy side of Jesus that we don't talk about all that, all that much? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that we... Is he the one who was throwing Trumpkin up in the air? Wait, nope, that was Aslan. That was Aslan. Yeah, I don't know. I did think that was interesting. But no, the... The only thing that we really see Aslan do on this whole journey is, like, he destroys an old lady's house um, and, and then speaks to, to her and makes her feel better. Well, and he also talks to that one teacher. Uh-huh. And, um... But he's not, like, liberating the children. He's not turning the old man into the tree. He's not breaking the bridge. He's not, you know, coming up with this healing wine. That like, we As- know of. Like, Aslan is just kind of there. Yeah, leading and this commanding. party other people to do these things so aslan is much more of an empowering figure here than he is a figure that just comes in and saves the day yeah and he's empowering other people to use their gifts to do good mm. interesting okay mm-hmm. so tell us about the wine chris oh man this wine though it's as red as red currant jelly smooth as oil strong as beef warming as tea cool as dew the richest wine mm-hmm 
which I really want to go into a bottle shop and just ask somebody, like, I'm looking for a wine that's just, it's got, like, a beefy strength to it. I want to... I want a, a beefy g- wine. Give me, give me, give me the T-bone of reds. What do you got? <laughs> uh. <laughs> anyway, um... Beef is another thing that has a strong flavor to it, either. Like, that that struck me as weird. It's like So Aslan asks <laughs> Susan and Lucy to get off of him and have to run while the um, old woman is going to ride on Aslan's back now. And they'd like that just as well. They did. Mm-hmm. And then they run off with the music and laughter and roaring and barking and neighing and singing and dancing and leaping. And they come to the place where Miraz's army has stood flinging down their swords. And we find out <gasps> that that old woman that we just rescued is none other than Caspian's old nurse. He's had two tutors tutoring <sighs> him that were both of dwarvish descent. Hmm. That's curious, isn't it? I wonder what that's <sighs> going to come up in the speculation. Uh... So as we Actually, continue on, yeah, the next thing we do after we completely meticulously discuss the chapter is is are we, are we done? There's nothing else that we needed to is focus on. Ask if there's anything else that we need to talk about, and then we do our rewrites. Yeah, is there anything th- else we need to talk? No, about? No, I think we thoroughly picked that one apart. Like, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Like, we didn't really dive into a lot of the symbolic nature behind what a lot of Aslan was doing was. Well, and that's my question. Like, is he going to tear down this, like, misinformation of the schools? And, like, because when, when the children took over as kings and queens in Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they basically freed all of the critters from the witches' schools. Uh-huh. And, like, it was this whole, like, no more education... And, like, it's shown that, like, uh, Lewis specifically has this kind of war on the the interpretation of education as students in a classroom receiving information. And he very much is a fan of, like, student and tutor. Uh Uh-huh. Like, tutor, tutee, transmission of knowledge in this very, like, a man to a boy kind of version of it. Yeah, it's a very Greek style of, uh, you know, ancient Greek style of instruction yes uh-huh. so bacchus is learning from salinas or whatever like uh-huh. however this goes but like they go and raid the schools and say nope no more education for you no more restrictive clothing no more restrictive clothing for you and so like yeah there's very much a symbolic thing they're going on where it's not just this structure of education but it's also the information that Mraz is controlling uh-huh. Mraz is giving a false history to the children through his his, through history classes in their schools. He's controlling it, and as such, it is it is bad and needs to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So Aslan is coming and freeing the people of Mraz's manipulation. Yeah. And freeing the river god of its chains. Its chains being where the people, the humans, have created a bridge across it. Mm-hmm. Where the humans have circumvented its, like, the role of the river god as as being a character or um, an influence on what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do we need to appease the river god in order to cross the fords? Like, is that something that needs to happen? Yeah. Ow. Um, so, yeah, then we have 
this kind of restoration and healing and bringing back of the old nurse back to Caspian, things like that. So yeah, like what, like, is there anything else symbolically that you would say Aslan is doing in this whole process? Um, uh, different symbolically, no. I do think it's um, worth discussing, and I feel like we could really get into it and don't have the time to discuss it at length here. But it's worth talking about the idea that all of these things that Aslan and company are destroying are basically symbols of progress it's like we have things that that men have built here and like we have this organized institutionalized education system that you know might be telling history wrong but it still exists we have these structures that ease like you know movement across the land and transportation and we're building a more civilized society in narnia that he's coming in and tearing down Mm -hmm. (sighs) yeah yeah. <laughs> I think that this is Lewis judging the the methods of civilization as like, hey, the Greeks had it right. They honored the river god and they trained each other in their in their skills from one to another. Uh-huh. And there was no like it was all a full democracy. There wasn't a governing body that was going to come and decide what would be taught in schools without people's actually having a say or whatever yeah like there was no moraz usurping leadership like Mm. but also lewis at the same time wants there to be kings and queens in narnia like Mm -hmm. he wants there to still be a ruling class yeah and so it's odd that he would say like oh yeah the ruling class is bad because they have control over the education system and infrastructure, but also the ruling class needs to exist because Caspian is king. They just need to submit to Aslan. Very British perspective. We we need a monarchy in place, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's frustrating because, like, the more that I dig into it, the more incongruous the the like the the system seems in Narnia. Yeah, and with, we... like, what does Lewis actually want? Mm-hmm as a person and as a storyteller what does he actually want to be conveying here because he's conveying some weird points yeah and we could i could get into a whole thing about you know the relationship between christianity and the church and uh institutionalized education and that we don't have time (laughs) this is something i'd really like to you know in our other podcast we'll discuss this i mean we could do a part two of this on (laughs) patreon if you really want to go into it (laughs) we could um we need more beverages for that one. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and go into Narnia Chopped and Screwed. Absolutely. Let's, let's... So Narnia Chopped and Screwed is our our rewriting of the chapter. In the same way that in the first part of our uh, episode, we took sentences out of the chapter to, re-te- to tell the story of the chapter in its own words. We have taken sentences out of the chapter to tell a new story with this chapter's words by rewriting them. Whoa. This is Narnia chopped and screwed, and I do believe I go first. Yep. Miraz is angry. Why are you crying, my love? asked Aslan. I knew it was true. His arm became a branch, his body the trunk of a tree, his feet took root. Treachery. 
Okay. 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 This. Okay. Talk. Like I can't. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're going for. I can't work. But it without very well. without conversation tags, it's really hard to. No. Yeah. No. To track with. No, I, I I track with it entirely. Well, share where you're coming from because I know you like to use these as an excuse to reinterpret the chapter. I do. I feel like there's. Uh, I mean, like this is a moment of like. Aslan as the authority giver. He's the one who sets up kings. He's the one who sets up queens. But those who usurp power, like the White Witch or Moraz, come to an end, and it's usually at the hands of Aslan. And we also have in this chapter a moment of a child being beaten by an adult. And that adult, who... We don't know if that was like a father figure to that child or just someone else has also got this kind of authority structure where he's an adult and this is a child and that adult gets turned into a tree. And so like, I don't know, I just feel like it was a moment of saying like, hey, Aslan's coming in and like topsy-turvying everything and also turning someone into a tree. Like, where is the rhyme and reason? Where is the, like, where is this coming from? Like... Is it treachery? Has Aslan betrayed something that actually, like, is a part of Aslan's character that means something? Like, has he come in here and done things in a way that is incongruous with his character? Like... Mayhaps. Mayhaps. But, like, this this role of Bacchus in this whole process of, as you said, healing the land Mm -hmm. seems a little suspect in, like, the light of what Aslan has been so far. Yeah. It doesn't seem to line up, except for, like, turning Rabbit Ash into a donkey. Like, <sighs> yeah, that was a thing. That's the most Bachian thing that we've had uh-huh. Aslan do. Yeah. Well, would you like me to go ahead and read mine? Yes, please. All right. Uh, mine is much shorter than my summary, but here is my rewrite. Have you ever stood at the edge of a great wood on a high ridge? when a wild southwester broke over it in full fury on an autumn evening. It was most horrible and most magnificent. Everyone in the streets fled before their faces. What are they? Oh, why did we let it happen at all, said Caspian. Ooh. Uh, And so that was my my take on this uh this event of all the trees coming back and you know instead of being this this force of joy being this you know as the telmarine saw them this force of terror that rampages through the countryside and yeah violently takes back this land which is exactly what's happening here bro no also you know as mentioned before i watched two towers last night and just had this scene of the ants in my head (laughs) uh so that's kind of where i was coming from with that yeah makes sense should we go ahead and go into our final segment? Sure. Tell us more about our final segment, Chris. Um, prior to the podcast, I had never read any of those books besides Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so I don't know what's going to happen chapter to chapter. So I do this segment called uh, Baseless Speculation, where I just take the details I'm given and run with it somewhere. Uh, it gets much, much harder as the book comes to a close and all the plot ends tie up. <laughs> uh, so I don't have a whole lot for this one. <sighs> Besides the fact that we see something really interesting here in this scene that we mentioned with, we can assume Bacchus, probably Bacchus, because it seems more like a thing he would do, turning this abusive old man into a tree. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it also seems like an Aslan thing to a certain extent because he did turn Rabidash into a donkey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and, yeah. And so he turns But his... there was redemption for Rabidash. Yeah. He could go back to his country and become a man again. Uh-huh. There's no redemption for that tree man. There's not. Um, but... There's no redemption for that tree man. <laughs> So we have this guy turning into a tree. And I'm going to take us all the way back to Magician's Nephew, our prequel book, and talk about the creation of Narnia as a whole. And, it, you know, we do we talk about it? If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. But there's this whole extended scene of how Narnia gets created and all the creatures that are brought into it and the leadership and whatnot and, you know, everybody that comes into being. Which, as far as I remember... In that book, we don't mention any talking trees. The first time we hear about talking trees or trees that might have sentience is in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when we talk about some of the trees being on the witch's side. But they're not mentioned in the creation of the world. So my baseless speculation comes in the... There was a there were tree gods, though, right? Like There were dryads. We had the river god and the dryads. Okay. Yeah, but we don't have, like, tree folk. And so my basal speculation comes in between these two points, asking, where did all these tree people come from? And were these all once men that have been transformed? Interesting. Okay. For, for who knows what, by Bacchus or other powers that be in the world. Are these Are these, you know, not necessarily primordial tree spirits, but you know, people who have been cursed or punished in some way to this oh. existence. Uh, maybe. <laughs> and I actually really like that. I, I do, because it, it feels in line, in, in the same way that the animals saw Uncle Andrew not as a bean or a man, but as a tree that needed to be planted, watered, and nurtured. It needed care. Mm-hmm. Uncle Andrew needed care mm-hmm. in order to be able to to possibly grow or become a creature. Mm-hmm. We also have the idea of the animals being able to go back to being wild, to mm-hmm. lose the ability to speak and to become like uncivilized, to become wilded again mm-hmm. and to lose this ability to speak. Mm-hmm. Don't go back to the ways of those creatures. And I feel like maybe that is a redemption of sorts for the wild man to 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 become a tree that can be nurtured and grown into a creature that can do some good. Mm-hmm. And also have will and the ability. Now, that said, like, where did these men come from? Like, we had King Frank and Queen Helen at the beginning of the Narnian world. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Where did all these people come from that eventually populated, like, outside of Narnia? Like, are they separate? Were they also, like, where did the Telmarines come from? Like, where did the people who became the trees come from, if that's the case? Like, I need more. Well, that, I do like the symbol symbolism of it, though. Yeah, if it is what we just kind of speculated. Because we know in *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, when the Pevensies come into Narnia, there are no other people there. Like it is a it is a land devoid of humans. 
Yes, but and we always we find out later that there are in Arkan land and yes, and so Palamon. Narnia has been cleared of humans somehow, some why. It's assumed that the witch does this at some point and gets rid of the lineage of King Frank and Queen Helen. You assume that. Yeah, sure. I, I think I've seen it elsewhere on the internet. Hey. However, we don't ever see any evidence of that. She doesn't ever brag about it. We don't ever see any human statues in her hall of, of rock figures. True. Which, if she had taken care of, like, the human rulers, she'd pr- probably have a few of those as trophies. Yeah. So we don't Fair. see that, so I don't think it was her doing. So have all of the men to protect themselves just turned into trees? Or were they punished? Or were they punished? Did Bacchus get out of hand and just turn all the humans into trees? And he was like, yes. this is to keep you safe. The yeah. witch is here. Yeah, that's some, there's some speculation. Hey, look, there's woods here now. <laughs> Y'all stay close to that lamppost, you hear? <laughs> Yep. That's that's where the gold tree is the, from the gold that fell out of Andrew's pocket. Yeah. So there you go. That's my best baseless speculation that we'll play around with later. I like it. All right, Kristen, you want to close us out here? Sure thing. Bow your heads. Fold your hands. So, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> uh, next week, we're, we're going to have the ultimate episode of this book. Final Final chapter. Final chapter, chapter 15. Aslan makes a door in the air. <laughs> that seems kind of weird, but, you know, we'll get there. It's weird, man. <laughs> Especially because the chapter art for mine is not a door. It's just, like, a doorway. Hmm. With no hinges or anything. It's just a frame. It's like sticks. It's like two posts and a lentil. It's not... <laughs> two posts and a lentil? That's the part that goes across, like a post and lentil okay. frame. It's a door frame. Okay. It's the post and the lentil. I thought lentils were like... They also are beans. <laughs> anyway, go on, continue. Post and lentil structures <laughs> are posts with lentils across them, Con- which are the horizontal boards. Continue. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Next week, we will be discussing Chapter 15, Aslan Makes a Door in the Air. And that is going to be the last chapter of this book before we have a guest on, very special guest, um, for a discussion of the full book from start to finish where Chris can go into all of his uh, complaints and arguments and everything. And I get to watch as he does it with a guest. Um, And then I edit it later. Thank you so much again for joining us. And, of course, you can follow us at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com, your fan art of the river God's chains being broken. And uh, you can send us some money to buy us a cup of coffee or something at uh, patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast. And... Um, Never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you, then as you please. Don't insult your lords the night before a single combat. It'll go wrong for you. Bye. using an accent for everybody here you're using an accent for like the sentences Uh not just the voices you got your character
Um, no. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> you don't seem very sure about that. Um, I need some definitions. But what, what happened, happened to, to the, the bridge? bridge? We have Bacchus hand her a glass of water from the wine, which... From the wine. From the well, which is, of course, now wine. Where the old lady asks, have you come to take me away? And Aslan take says... Take me away! Sorry, go ahead. Aslan says, yes, dearest. I did think that was interesting. Intriguing. I don't know. I'm trying to stop using that word. It's a bad habit. Trying to quit. And helping her get rid of her unnecessary clothing. It's a very weird scene. It's very <laughs> weird scene. <laughs> There's no redemption for that tree man. There's not. Um, but there's no redemption for that tree man. 